Welcome to the McQuaid Arcade Podcast. I'm Scott. And I'm Biggs. Here we are all together once again, celebrating the holidays with our, believe it or not, Biggs, fourth annual McQuaid Arcade Holiday Spectacular. Woo! And while in the past, we have celebrated this most wonderful time of year by reminiscing about our special holiday experiences that we grew up with, this year's Wishbook catalog, uh, all the Christmas movies and TV specials and stuff that we loved watching year after year, getting our Nintendos for the very formative Christmas of 1986, stuff like that. This year, dear listener, we're closing out the year with something a little bit different. This year, our gift to you is an exploration of a piece of holiday television history that we never actually saw back when we were kids. And unlike favorites like Rudolph or Frosty or Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas, this is not a beloved holiday classic enjoyed year after year by generations, but a notorious oddity that is every bit as bewildering today as it was back when it first aired for a single time back in November of 1978, never to officially be seen again. The Star Wars Holiday Special. Starring Mark Hamill as Luke Skywalker. Harrison Ford as Han Solo. Carrie Fisher as Princess Leia. You know, it's funny that they say that this special is starring those cast members of Star Wars because they are, they're barely in this thing. Uh, Chewbacca's dad, his gross, toothless, old Wookiee dad, Itchy, (laughs) I'm pretty sure has more screen time than the actual Star Wars cast combined all together. But before we really dig into the special itself, let's talk about our experience watching it together for the first time as we prepared for this very special episode of our show. As I said, we didn't see this when it aired, or if we did... You know, we certainly don't remember it because we were just three years old back in 1978. It's not on Disney Plus with the rest of the Star Wars content, so we fired up YouTube to see if it was on there, and it was. We found the whole bizarre extravaganza right there for the watching in glorious high-definition resolution running at 60 frames per second, and neither of those enhancements did it any favors. It turns out we'll talk more about that in a bit, and... We were surprised. We were kind of surprised. The whole thing is just there on YouTube because Disney obviously owns Star Wars, and you would think that they would be super protective of, of stuff that they own, but then you saw a comment in the YouTube comment section that, that explains why it's, uh, why it's allowed to be up there. Yes, because Disney usually is crazy about this kind of stuff, but I read something that summed it up perfectly. It, it basically said, the only reason Disney doesn't copyright strike the Star Wars holiday special is because that would require admitting they own it. The first thing that struck me as we sat down to watch this, before we even hit play, was the length of the video. One hour and 37 minutes. So this thing was a full, at least, two-hour feature-length production when it aired with commercials. I had no idea it was going to be that long. Based on what little we knew of it, you know, we've seen little clips and, and photos here and there over the years. I assumed it was probably like an hour long when it aired, but having actually watched it now... There is, I mean, maybe 30 minutes of actual material here. That, and, and all of it is so obviously padded and stretched for time. Every single scene and segment and song and, and wordless Wookiee conversation is agonizingly <laughs> long. And, and, and every, every transition between any of those things is, is so long. It feels like someone in the camera control room fell asleep and like missed their cue because they were even more bored 
Then Harrison Ford <laughs> appears to be throughout this whole thing. Yes, the Wookiee conversations. At one point, I started to feel like we were watching a bizarre avant-garde art piece after a while. I'm like, what is this? Where is this going? Yeah. Yeah, and that was just the beginning. We took notes for the show while we watched. Well, I should say you took actual notes. I tried, but uh, all I had written down after 90 plus minutes was just the two questions that I found myself asking over and over as we watched. Number one, why? (laughs) Just the word why, question mark, as in why is any of this even happening? And two, who is this for? That's it. Just two questions. That's all my my bewildered brain could muster. We're going to discuss those two questions, and let's talk about the why first. Why did this disaster ever happen in the first place? So I think it's hard to know the true why or whys behind this, but there are some really great guesses, and I have to say they're all sort of bleak. And to my thinking, at least, they all suggest that the folks who hate all the new Star Wars stuff, they're always saying these are obvious cash grabs of a sacred and cherished franchise. Well, they need only to look at this bizarre and misguided venture to see that the storytelling had shifted from passion to profit long before The Phantom Menace. From reading a lot of takes online, I think the clearest answer was pure consumerism. Lucas pushed the project through because he didn't want folks to forget about Star Wars for the upcoming holiday season. That said... This was a pretty clever solution to something that really hadn't even been considered a problem up until that point. We talk about the commercialization of the holidays, but Lucas and his team, they were visionaries. They were thinking about negotiating merchandising rights. They were thinking about the success of Star Wars toys and the other products. And this is in a time when I don't think we even talked about stuff in this way. I would argue with hindsight, the reason we've become this generation of men, children, constantly looking back and still playing with toys and, you know, focusing on this kind of stuff is precisely because of the genius of Lucas. Is it not possible that we're discussing the very birth of one of our favorite phrases, tangible nostalgia? I I think so. But the environment was also very different, and perhaps it was ripe for these innovations. Picture it, relatively few films released annually compared to the present day. Well, maybe not now. I feel like kind of modern cinema is falling apart, but its heyday, maybe you could say, was in the 1990s. Uh, At that point, I felt like we would go to the movies every week, sometimes twice a week. But at this point in history, I think that there was a relative scarcity of films. And as we were reading about it, I mean, we were, you know, we would talk to our parents and kind of read about what was it like growing up. It really seems like popular movies stayed in theaters for many months or even over a year, especially if they were hits. And then sometimes they would actually do a re-release of a popular or a significant film. But this is really different than on-demand kind of viewing that we're used to. And there was really no way to catch up on something or watch it again at home before we had VHS and cable TV. So in a weird way, back then, if you saw your favorite movie ever, well, that was it. That was it. You had your memories, and that was all you had, until Lucas and the crew brought the action figures along. This is all such important context. You need to understand, number one, just how different media consumption was in general back in 1978, and how different the state of Star Wars was when the holiday special came out. Star Wars is inescapable now. There are movies and shows and cartoons and theme parks and video games and all of it, you know, based on new content that just keeps getting churned out by Disney. Back in 1983, when the credits rolled on Return of the Jedi when we were eight, that was it, man. Like, that was Star Wars. It was all we had, and it was all we thought we would ever have. 
But years earlier, even earlier than that, when the holiday special came out, all anyone had was just the original 1977 Star Wars movie. The Empire Strikes Back was still a couple years off at this point, and I'm not sure how it worked back then. I, I don't know if the average moviegoer even knew that a sequel was on the way. And I cannot skip an opportunity to express my bitterness. I remember watching The Empire Strikes Back, and obviously this was at home. I did not see it in the theater, but we were watching it, and when that cliffhanger ending hit, I was shocked and mortified. I was like, how could this be? Where's the rest of the story? We had no idea. There was no internet. There was literally no way to know what was coming next or if anything was coming next. I was furious. So with that in mind, think about how excited kids must have been for this. Star Wars had come out and blown their minds. And now, a year and a half later, they they found out that they were finally getting new Star Wars content. They were going to see their beloved ragtag group of rebels in action again, this time in the comfort of their living room. Instead, they only got brief cameos by Luke Skywalker and friends and two hours of B. Arthur, <laughs> Jefferson Starship, and a, a toothless elderly Wookiee watching softcore <laughs> VR pornography. <laughs> it was ahead of its time. Yeah, it was. <laughs> uh, if, if all those sound like weird choices to you for both a Star Wars story and a holiday special, you are right. Every single decision made here was a strange one. And that brings me to my second question. Who was this even for? Who did the people behind this special think it was going to appeal to? There wasn't anywhere near enough Star Wars to really please the people who were tuning in because they were excited for more Star Wars. As we already said, the actual stars in the movie are barely in this thing. And when they are on screen, it is weird. Luke Skywalker is almost unrecognizable. He is absolutely caked with stage makeup and his hair. Uh, it looks like a, a little wig <laughs> that's been combed down over his forehead. Now, in between Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back, as I believe as Star Wars was kind of wrapping up, Mark Hamill was in a terrible car accident in which he very badly injured his face and he had to undergo plastic surgery. There's even speculation that's why we see Luke get his face, you know, like mauled by the Wampa at the beginning of Empire Strikes Back to sort of explain why he looks a little different. But I believe that accident was back in like January of 1977, almost a full year before the holiday special came out. I don't know what the state of reconstructive surgery and stuff was back then. Maybe that is why they had him all made up and his hair kind of brushed down to cover up, you know, scars or whatever. Uh, whatever the reason, and that's almost certainly the reason, it's, it's pretty jarring when you see him on screen. Then you have Harrison Ford, who we now know as kind of a curmudgeon who doesn't exactly speak fondly of his Star Wars tenure and famously tried to get his character killed off in every movie so he didn't have to come back and do another one. Uh, and watching this special now, knowing all that about him, man, you can see just how annoyed he is to have to be there doing a, a TV variety show with Itchy and Lumpy. The Wookiee's Lumpy is, is Chewbacca's son. That's his name. They named him Lumpy. Naturally. And Carrie Fisher as Princess Leia. Um, well, let's just say that the, the way her eyes look in this special, it definitely seems like she is in a galaxy far, far away. <laughs> but even if a kid wouldn't have noticed any of these things back then, and they probably wouldn't, the stars of Star Wars probably have about 10 minutes of total screen time. So the special isn't Star Wars enough for Star Wars fans, but it's also not enough of an actual holiday special to appeal to, like, anybody else. Variety show TV-style holiday specials were a, a popular T 
TV staple when this came out. Sonny and Cher, Bob Hope, uh, Donnie and Marie would do them. But those were all like actually Christmas-themed specials with festive music and skits and actual, you know, holiday material. This is not. I just wanted to point out that I had a Donnie and Marie-themed record player with a microphone. That's how... That's how on fleek I was back then. So <laughs> other than the Star Wars cast, like other holiday specials, this one had, you know, known celebrities attached to it who showed up in the show, probably enough to rope in plenty of viewers who were just looking for a holiday special to watch. There was the, the beloved B. Arthur from Maud and Golden Girls, of course, Art Carney, who we grew up watching on old, old reruns of The Honeymooners, and who... Turns out, had just a few years earlier beat out Al Pacino and Jack Nicholson for a Best Actor Award at the 1975 Oscars. Who knew? Then we have Diane Carroll, who is in the, uh, probably the most uncomfortable scene in the show. That's the aforementioned softcore VR porn. (laughs) Harvey Korman from the Carol Burnett Show, who was great, the band Jefferson Starship. So while they had names, popular names attached to the show, everything any of those talented people did throughout the agonizing two-hour runtime of the special it was just weird and off-putting and uh, skits weren't funny the musical numbers were largely terrible and again none of it had anything to do with with the holidays at least not our holidays the whole premise behind the special is that Chewbacca is trying to get back to his family on the Wookiee planet of Kashyyyk and this is actually the first time we see or even hear about Kashyyyk in Star Wars. Uh, There's a couple big firsts for Star Wars in the special, actually. He's trying to get back to them for the Wookiee holiday called Life Day. Uh, One of the actors in the show, I'm pretty sure one of the Imperial guys calls it Kazook. (laughs) At one point, the planet Kazook. And it's like, we looked at each other like, did he just say Kazook? (laughs) And again, yeah, a guy flubbed his lines. Like, who cares? But that's just one of the things that just add up to show the overall quality and and attention to detail here uh, on this show. Now, Life Day, it could have been anything, right? They could have made it a a very Christmas-like holiday with snow and gingerbread Wookiee treehouses and Wookiee claws coming down the chimney. This all could have been very Christmassy, but George Lucas had to sign off on everything and was probably like, well, actually, the climate on uh, Kazook is quite arid. They wouldn't have snow and they wouldn't... (laughs) Uh, Wookiee tree houses wouldn't have chimneys because there's indigenous creatures called b- boobadoops who would come down the chimney. And it, so, you know, so we ended up with this very non-holiday holiday special. Let's talk about the story of the special, uh, which, you know, is hilariously nonsensical. Nothing about it makes sense. It opens up with Han and Chewie in a cheap TV budget copy of the Millennium Falcon cockpit trying to get Chewie home for Life Day. That's it. I'm turning back. I know your family's waiting. I know it's an important day. All right, we'll give it a try. I'll set your coordinates. Don't jump far. I'll get you back there in time, pal. Trust me. Then we have the hilariously cheapo title sequence they couldn't even be bothered to use the right font to like actually get the star wars logo now if you were to watch this i mean don't you shouldn't watch this but it only takes watching these first couple minutes and the title sequence the credits to get an idea of how poorly done this all is but but make, make no mistake like don't don't watch it this is not a 
it's so bad, it's good kind of situation. It's just bad. Please don't waste any more time than has already been wasted watching this thing. We watched the Star Wars Holiday Special, so you don't have to. Yeah, don't do it. (laughs) Uh, Especially because right after this title sequence, you would have to sit through, as we did, almost 10 minutes of Wookiee noises (laughs) with this little sitcom inside Chewbacca's house with his family. There's no subtitles. They're no. They're all just grunting at each other for almost ten minutes. We timed it. We checked it out. And of all, we were clocking it. Of all the bizarre choices made here, this is maybe the most insane because this is how the show starts. This is what's <laughs> supposed to grab you. After a while, we looked at each other like, "Are we having a nightmare right now? Like, what is what is <laughs> happening?" So Mala, who is Chewbacca's wife, calls Luke Skywalker to see if he has seen her husband. Then the Empire shows up and camps out in Chewbacca's family home because they are suspicious that Chewie is working with the Rebellion. And that's when we get our first musical number to distract Lil Lumpy as stormtroopers ransack his room and, like, break all his toys (laughs) for no reason. They put on a holographic space Cirque du Soleil act on what kind of looks like the, um, the, the chessboard from the Millennium Falcon. For Lumpy to watch. And it just looks so cheesy because you could actually look pretty closely with the four, I guess the 4K res or the higher resolution we could see it. And you could see there were literal tape recorders that were around there to make it look like technology. Yes. Yes. The table he's watching on has actual old school tape recorders stuck to it. And as, as dumb as that looks, it's, it's not worse than the actual act that is playing on the thing that Lumpy is watching. It's terrible. It's so dumb and so boring. We're watching it going, you know, who, who is this supposed to be entertaining? Is this supposed to be entertaining us as the viewer? Because it's, it certainly isn't. Uh, it, must just, it must just be to entertain. Like, we're supposed to believe that Lumpy is entertained by it because, boy, the Lumpster is just eating it up. He loves it. <laughs> Could we call it a Lumpster fire? <laughs> <laughs> At some point, they call their fellow uh, rebel sympathizer, Art Carney, who owns a, a junk store, I think, is what it's supposed to be. like. He's like a, a, a space Fred Sanford. <laughs> and he comes over to help out by giving old Grandpa Itchy the VR porn. Um, I think this is the second, <laughs> the second musical number of the show. Diane Carroll, a, a human woman, performs a... a Weirdly boring yet sensual song uh, for the toothless old Wookiee. And he watches it in this in this device that looks like an old school like beauty parlor hair dryer thing chair. <laughs> um, it's again, it's just so weird. Art Carney uh, comes over and he has the little, you know, the tape or the disc or whatever he's going to put in. And when he sets Itchy up with the video, he's like, uh-huh, you are a... Where do you get a load of this? You're going to really like it. <laughs> Old toothless Wookiee. Gonna insert this proton pack. How about itchy? I thought you might like this. One of those that... Uh, oh, it's a real... It's kind of hard to explain. It's a... Uh, wow. <laughs> you know what I mean. <laughs> happy life day. I do mean happy life day. 
nightmare fuel. I still think about that, those gums. It was so weird. So while her father-in-law gets his jollies in the middle of their living room, <laughs> Chewbacca's wife, Mala, reaches out for help finding her husband again. This time she calls Princess Leia, who, uh, as we mentioned, just seems absolutely zooted through this whole thing. And now that we've seen it, who could possibly blame her? Arkady puts on a music video by Jefferson Starship. It was an original song written for the special called Light the Sky and Fire. While it's not great, um, unlike every other musical number on the show, it actually feels like a real song. Of course, Jefferson Starship was a a pretty big-name band that started off with like psychedelic rock back in the 60s and early 70s as Jefferson Airplane, then became Jefferson Starship, and then changed their name again, um, probably to get away from the shame of having been on this show, (laughs) to just Starship in the 80s when they released big hits like we built the city and nothing's going to stop us now. They To make it look more Star Wars, more space-like, I guess, they gave the lead singer a big microphone that kind of looks like, kind of lights up like a lightsaber. And we laughed at it because it looks silly. And when the, the cheapo lightsaber effect doesn't work, it just kind of looks phallic and weird. Uh, and weird, as we've said many times, is just sort of par for the course here for this special. So it fit right in. Our favorite segment of the holiday special This one, it makes absolutely no sense in the context of the world that we're in, the world of Star Wars, but it was pretty cool. Lumpy, uh, they give him yet another device to stick his face in to distract him, and he watches a Star Wars cartoon. Now, what's weird is that he is in Star Wars. Like, for Lumpy, Star Wars is just life. Like, he is part of Star Wars, but he's watching a Star Wars cartoon featuring like people he knows like he's literally in star wars watching star wars uh you know and he sees in this cartoon uh, real people that he actually knows like luke skywalker and han solo aka you know the guy his mom just got off the phone with and and his dad's friend from work (laughs) they're in this cartoon and as little sense as it makes the animated sequence is actually really pretty cool very stylized kind of reminded us both of heavy metal that old animated movie it was animated by a Canadian studio called Nelvana that went on to animate classic stuff like Care Bears and the Beetlejuice animated series and the beloved Magic School Bus. And it's in this animated sequence that we are first introduced, for the first time ever, to famed Star Wars bounty hunter Boba Fett as he rides around on a dinosaur on what appears to be a planet made entirely of pizza. <laughs> then we have sort of the big... Set piece Star Wars number. B. Arthur is a bartender in the famous Mos Eisley Cantina. And the gang's all here. We have all the various alien characters and the band from the actual movie. And boy, do they look rough. Even though, I mean, this is definitely the, the actual masks and costumes and stuff that were used in the movie cantina scene. It really is one of the most fascinating things that they brought back the actual props, the masks, the puppets, everything. And we know how great that scene is. That scene holds up pretty well even today. But boy, do you realize how movie magic works with careful shot placement, deliberate lighting, 24 frames per second, and all of that just falls apart with crummy TV cameras and lots of motion and lots of lighting. It looks terrible. And I think that the lesson from Bruce the Shark from the movie Jaws, it just echoes loudly in our minds as told by the website boldentrance.com quote 
Bruce's malfunction worked in Spielberg's favor. Embracing this limitation, Spielberg built up the audience's anticipation to see the shark. In successive attacks, the director recreated the suspense of the opening scene, beginning with shots of swimmers' legs dangling under the surface. In scenes where there are multiple swimmers, the audience wondered which person the shark would attack, adding to the suspense, unquote. Yes, as we've said many times when it comes to special effects and stuff and monsters and movies, less is almost always more. And all of these suits and costumes and masks looked great in very brief, very intentionally lit little flashes on the screen in Star Wars. And, you know, what's amazing is some of them were just rubber masks, cool rubber masks uh, that were designed by the great Rick Baker, the makeup and special effects master behind American Werewolf in London and the Thriller video. But yeah, and here they just look bad when they're all poorly lit and they're worn by extras just sort of dancing around and doing whatever they want. You can see the, the, the seams in the back of them and stuff. Uh, the, the, the only thing that did look great, though, in the cantina was the, the giant rat B. Arthur cuddles with at one point during the song. You know, the famous Star Wars giant rat from the cantina scene. <laughs> it's a rat. It's just a giant rat. Happy holidays, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> Merry Christmas, everyone. Um <laughs> It's not a guy. It's not like a rat guy, rat alien guy. It's just an enormous rat suit or puppet. Um, I don't know where he came from because he is not in the real cantina scene in Star Wars. It's just somebody found a big a big rat puppet in the prop room at the CBS studio and thought he'd fit right in. He did not. <laughs> uh, and, and Harvey Corman shows up in the cantina as a, as a guy who's apparently in love with B. Arthur. And had I seen this special as a kid like this scene would have messed me up because it's just creepy he has a hole in his head like a hole in the top of his skull that he just pours his drinks his space booze right into right onto his brain it's very weird and you know we get a little skit between him and b arthur that like everything else in the show isn't even a little funny and just goes on and on and on. It has that bad improv feel, the the feeling that it just won't stop and that they're improvising and running out of ideas and you're just like, oh, please, just pull the plug, just stop. Then after that, I believe after that, I don't, I lost track at some point, uh, we get the big closing number, the big Life Day song when a bunch of Wookiees put on red robes and hold these glowing balls and Princess Leia sings a Life Day song that is set to the tune of the Star Wars theme song and, you know, the fact that they put lyrics to the Star Wars theme music, it reminded me of when Gene Roddenberry once wrote lyrics to the Star Trek theme music yes. just so he could get a writer's credit on it and steal half the royalties from the actual composer. Um, but as, as silly as it was, we were both quite surprised because Carrie Fisher actually had a lovely singing voice. We A day of harmony, a day of joy we all can share, together joyously, a day that takes us through the The show draws to a close with a slapped-together montage of scenes from the movie as Chewie remembers all the Star Wars adventures he's had with his friends, and the Wookiees gather around the Life Day tree and 
sacrifice Lumpy to their Wookiee god and eat him for Life Day. No, they don't do that. Uh, but hey, that would have been funny or interesting, unlike what we actually got in this not-so-Star Wars, not-so-holiday Star Wars holiday special from a galaxy far, far away, shoveled out onto 1970s primetime TV to make sure kids ask for Luke Skywalker toys for one more Christmas. We hope you enjoyed our annual holiday spectacular, the fourth of many to come, we hope. And to those of you who have reached out to us uh, asking when we'll be putting out more episodes, thank you so much for the support. Thank you, everybody, for listening, uh, all of our listeners. We appreciate your patience with us over this, these last couple leaner seasons of the show. But please stay tuned because we have got a lot of fun stuff planned, more podcast episodes, fun video content, and more all about our favorite stuff from the 80s and beyond. And we think you are going to love it. So make sure you follow us on social media and YouTube at at McQuaid Arcade so you don't miss out. From the McQuaid Arcade family to you and yours, we once again wish you happy holidays, a happy and healthy new year, and a joyous life day. Gather your glowing orbs, don your ankle-length red smocks, and gather round the sacred tree to recite hallowed verses in celebration of life day. Or maybe you better not. To quote the YouTube comment section, If it weren't for the internet, I may have gone the rest of my life thinking the memory of this was just an early childhood hallucination. From Wookiees fantasizing about Diane Carroll with orgasmatron-like machines, to some serious B. Arthur musical numbers, this was a wild ride into the heart of darkness and consumerism. The Star Wars holiday special represents an experiment, a failed one, yes, but one that ultimately led to one of the most successful empires in all of entertainment and even culture one that shaped our ideas around cherished characters, worlds, and stories before we used modern terms like franchises and IPs. In a way, it was the first big swing at a multiverse of sorts. Here were the characters we knew, interacting in different ways and in new places, bursting at the seams with potential. And on that note, stay limber. For more fun from the 80s and beyond, be sure to follow at McQuaid Arcade on social media and sign up for our newsletter at McQuaidArcade.com. McQuaid Arcade is a McQuaid Media Production.